I love angry women because angry women are free. Reading is a collaboration between the writer and the reader. If Michelle Obama had natural hair, Barack Obama would not have won. Biblioteket er det originale internet. Det er det, jeg gider, We need this Europe. And that's why we have libraries. Knowledge. Knowledge is power. Det her er live for det kongelige bibliotek. Stedet, hvor vi samler alt det bedste fra vores livescene her på Den Sorte Diamant. Din vært, Lise Bak Hansen. Klimakrisen raser. Indlandsisen forsvinder, og klimaet i Arktis forandrer sig hurtigere end noget andet sted på planeten. For de folk, der bor her i Arktis, så er klimakrisen ikke bare talergrafer. Det er gletsjere, der forsvinder i deres levetid. Og de kan fortælle historier om en verden, der forandrer sig for øjnene af dem. Som Svend Hardenberg udtaler, når vi fortæller vores historier fra vores del af verden om klimaforandringernes konsekvenser, så lytter folk. Men den beslutningsproces, der skal følge og ændre måden, vi gør ting på, er utilstrækkelig. Svend Hardenberg er stor entreprenør på Grønland, men vi kender ham også som den grønlandske udenrigs- og råstofsminister Hans Eliassen i tv-serien Borgen. Talken er en del af Arctic Imagination, en serie af talks på tværs af Atlanten fra Danmark til Kanada, der kaster lys på transformationen, udviklingen og krisen i Arktis som et stærkt symbol, et mytologisk inspirerende landskab og en geopolitisk faktor. I den samtale, du kan glæde dig til at høre nu, diskuterer han og den kendte kanadiske kulturpersonlighed Jesse Winter, hvilke unikke historier indigenous samfund har at dele med verden om klimakrisen og hvordan man får folk til at lytte. So we should uh, really just continue the conversation we were having in the green room because it was really great. Um, we were talking about all kinds of things, uh, but uh, in particular in Like I just I want to say, from my perspective as a Inklakamuk uh, from British Columbia, which is the other side of the country, uh, last summer uh, my community uh, experienced an incredibly traumatic uh, week of uh, destruction, where we experienced plus 50 degree weather for about a week. Um, in particular, like the official uh, the official count was like three days of plus 50 degree weather. Uh, which culminated in a wildfire that destroyed my community, my hometown of oh, British wow. Columbia. And so climate change is very real to me and my family and my community. And so uh, this conversation about climate change is, is uh, impactful to me personally. Um, I witnessed as a, as a youth growing up in Lytton, uh, I literally watched a glacier evaporate um, over you know, my childhood. So every every summer there would still be this this glacier above our community and every year it got smaller and smaller and smaller until I was about 17 when the glacier this little glacier just disappeared hmm. uh, and then it never came back in the summer it would still be like the snow patch in the winter but it never came back in the summer wow. and it was like uh, it was like oh one day it was gone you know uh, and so in my lifetime my fairly relatively short lifetime I've witnessed the change in real in real real measures you know in culminating in these 
wildfires that we experience in British Columbia every summer. We now call it like the, the smoke season or the fire season because it's, it's not just summer anymore. Every year there's, it's the, the air quality in British Columbia becomes some of the worst in the world. Um, you know, and it's a province that, that, you know, prides itself as being supernatural British Columbia, you know. Uh, but the wildfire situation has gotten so bad that uh, it has destroyed my community. Um, we had another fire there again this summer, and so it's just, it's a real, it's a real threat. And uh, I'm sure um, uh, you can speak to the, the change in the Arctic as well that you've witnessed in your, in your lifetime, Swend. Yes, well, um, thank you for having me here. I really appreciate the invite. Um, well, in regards to climate change, we really see the effects of it in, in our part of the world. We see the increase of off-melt of the Indian ice cap. Mm. It's getting quicker and quicker. And the numbers that they are analyzing, that it uh, diminishes every year, is staggering. And uh, we also see the changes in, um, in the weather, weather conditions, much, much uh, warmer weather in, in summer and, and uh, much more uh unpredictable weather situations so um we, we have the same kind of experience uh, in our part of the world as you have been describing yeah um we were talking uh uh in the green room there about uh the importance of water to our communities not just as a as a resource but uh, our relationship to water mm. um and I know that uh, it's, in, it's as this country holds probably the largest um, reserves of fresh water in the world, uh, how important that is going forward and, and, and our relationship to, to water uh, going forward and how, how we hold that. Uh, can you speak to that a bit, Jesse? Yeah, well, thank you so much and thanks for being here. And uh, I love your show. So uh, <laughs> I'm very excited to, to meet you. Um, well, I just think. I think like most things, for at least from, from an Anishinaabe perspective, water would be no, nothing you would ever commodify in any way, just like you wouldn't commodify anything that you have to live on because you immediately are deciding that some people won't be able to access something they need to live, which is not a great way to um, govern anything. But So I think we, we have to reorient sort of our whole position. Um, water, I think, is a particular subject that, you know, my community, uh, Ganabajing on the north shore of Lake Huron, what the government calls uh, Serpent River First Nation, you know, it had a water problem for much of my adult uh, life. I don't, don't live in the community, but they had real challenges accessing clean water despite being, you know, an hour outside of Sudbury. Like, they're not exactly a remote uh, place. Um, and that's, I think that is, speaks larger to the historic access issues that the Canadian government has sort of put in for our communities, like for first, it's, there's a reason why there's a water crisis in First Nations communities and not widespread in Canada. Right. And I think that's just the holdovers of uh, colonialism. But I did want to also say, like, uh, just to bring it back maybe to the subject, you know, the first time I really understood or started to see like climate change and what it would mean was actually in the work of Zacharias Canuck, who's mm. an Inuit uh, filmmaker, Anuk filmmaker. And uh, he's been making videos in the north um, in Anuvik since 1983. 
And some of them, often, a lot of them are just capturing the knowledge of the elders. And a lot of what they spoke about in those early videos, Kevin, was of what they were seeing happening to the environment. And just describing the degradation of the, the ice and the, what it was doing to the animals. And it strikes me that part of why we're unprepared for the moment we're facing this climate crisis where we've got wildfires, we've got flooding, we've got all of this happening globally, is actually because collectively these nations have refused to listen to what indigenous people have been saying probably ever, but certainly around this issues for many, many years. Like I, I think if we'd actually engaged properly with these communities who are on the front lines of this change 40 years ago, the fires your community faces, the, none of that would be surprising because they've, just like so many things, indigenous people have been saying these things for a very long time, have been telling these truths. It's the accepting of those truths that has been the block for so many. And I think, you know, we're coming to a time, Anishinaabe have prophecy about this, like you come to a time where the world does actually turn back. Mm -hmm. And I think we're coming to that time. I think the question for the world is, there's sort of two ways that happens. Like there's the willing way where you turn back because you realize you have to. And then there's the way where you are forced to because you have no choice. And one of those is way more pleasant than the other. <laughs> and so I think we have to make the, the, that's sort of the choices we have to make now is not that we can get ourselves out of this. It's how unpleasant does this have to get as we try to get ourselves out of it. Yeah, there's something about human nature that doesn't respond until it's an absolute crisis. And even then, it's, you know, by then it's way too late. But the, also, it's, uh, it's, the, it's the thing that gets you moving. Right? Do you think that's true, though, Kevin, that that's human nature? Or is that cultural nature? Maybe it's cultural, yeah. Because I, mean, I don't think Anishinaabe, who think seven generations in advance, do think like that. Right. I, 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 where you react for the crisis. The whole point of... Uh, like the Anishinaabe philosophy, and it was interesting to hear in the green room, your philosophy is exactly the same, which is you, it, you, there's no such thing as owning land. The land owns you. You live in relation to the land. But like some deed of paper is pointless. The land will far, like we can all disappear. Guess what will still be here? The land, right? right? Like it never, it's immutable. Like it's it's there. And so like to me... It's a philosophical thing. We, we are in a culture that does not have long-term thinking and thus is surprised when consequences ha occur 30 years after an action. But that's a cultural thing. I, actually, I think humans absolutely have the capacity to understand if I plant a tree, I am not going to enjoy the shade. But someone 50 years from now is going to enjoy the shade. And that's the point. And so I think actually we have to you know, to use a very loaded term, decolonize our way of thinking, get out of quarterly report sort of measurement of literally anything, mm -hmm. and get back to a human measurement, which is over lifetimes and over generations and not this really short... Our, our communities, all three of us, did not persist Anishinaabe on these lands for 13,000 years because we were short-sighted thinkers. Right. We, we existed in this in, in sustainable way for 13,000 years precisely because we think about stuff far beyond our own lifetimes in terms of what the actual impacts are. Right. I, I don't 
really agree on it's only a, a cultural thing. I think it's a systemic thing. And the whole system about investments and how you actually perceive uh, development projects and so on are very short-term focused. And it's, I think that's the main driver for how you are thinking projects. I guess I would argue the system is a result of the culture. The yeah, maybe at, at least the Western culture. That's what I mean. Yeah, okay, that's what I mean. sorry. Yeah, but, but we were discussing in the green room the differences between where we live because we have this notion about you cannot buy land, you cannot own land. It's all about how we perceive if it's in the public's interest to utilize a certain piece of land for a certain purpose. Mm. So we use a lot of, uh, of our resources to, uh, to think about and discuss internally how we would use it. Somebody can apply for a project, but it's not necessarily the best project to be utilizing or to supporting. And that can be frustrating for investors because we don't follow the normal uh, narrative of buying a place and then utilize everything there. You can establish whatever. Uh, so we have a completely different notion about how we want to move forward. And what I can hear on, on you guys, it's totally different here, right? Well, I mean, I think we're more beholden to the investor class in terms of the systems here, yes. Yeah. Is, I think there's a great, uh, you know, disappointing investors is sort of, uh, a thing that like this culture like the whole point is to please investors and I would argue in fact disappointing investors should be like the new thing that we do all the time <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and we should reframe that 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 is actually in investment when we do that it's an investment in humanness not in a false economy thing uh, that isn't in service of humans an investment in life in like we're investing in the ongoing of our species, which I think is an investment worth making much more than shareholder gain at yeah. any point. I think the, the differences between our two places in the world when you're looking at Canada and Greenland is that even though our country is very big, we have a very, very small population. We have only 56,000 inhabitants in the whole country. And that gives us certain freedom in regards to how to develop ourselves. But I think it would be totally different if we were like 4 million or 40 million or 400 million people living in, a, in, in our part of the world. So we are, we are at the start of something, yeah. right? So we had time to actually rethink a lot of things and we are developing from there. But I cannot predict how it will look like when we are looking like 100 years ahead. Well, it's interesting. I mean, we were talking also, and in this in this conversation as well, systems and how, um, and and the way in which these cultures, these governments, have were created, and what their role was in that create, like how how they factored into the world. And, and Greenland, um, uh, and in terms of its relationship to Canada, they're very different creation stories, right? And yeah. and the 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 I wonder how much the indigenous influence in your country. Uh, uh, like bleeds into the the, the policies and, and things well, like that. It's I, I I think it's it's fairly easy to say that we as indigenous we are in the country and deciding everything, right? Because we have our own government, we have our own parliament, we have our own legislative processes and everything. We control our own municipalities. So it's completely different because we are 
I wouldn't say indigenous because we are Inuit in our own yeah. country, right? Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a different notion. Yeah. So it shifts in regards to how you perceive things. Yes. Because it's, it's at least on the most uh, relevant things for ourselves, we have a decision-making process that is ours. There's certain issues that we still need to have clearance uh, from Denmark uh, from on, on security issues and so forth, but, but still it's in the process. So it, we cannot say that we are indigenous and have indigenous interests in our own country because we control it ourselves, right? Yeah. How interesting. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there's also issues in regards to when we're looking from the overall perspective that there are different interests between Greenland and Denmark, obviously. We want to move forward with our own independence process, and it's not necessarily in the interest of the Danish parliament slash government to support that. Mm -hmm. Right, so uh, th there's something completely different there. Mm. Yeah, I mean, like when you look at the, the, it's interesting in the, in the, in the creation story of how this country, this, this construct that we call Canada today was, we were partners initially. Right? There was a partnership that was then completely co-opted and then we were like pushed aside and, and, and those perspectives were, uh, were pushed aside. Uh, and even in, in terms of like the wildfire situation in British Columbia, there was an indigenous knowledge about how you take care of the land by doing burns. So you would do, in, in the colder, wetter seasons, you would actually burn out a lot of the fuel that uh, would cause problems in the summer. So that, and it would also revitalize the land. So like, yeah. and you did it in a way that, uh, that was in sort of relationship to how the land works because those, those forest stands, in fact, can't re-germinate re without a fire. So you need the fire. But when you let it run out of control, it takes over everything and it destroys everything in, in, the, in the hottest seasons. And so the indigenous people for thousands of years cultivated the land in that way, or, or that's the wrong word. But, uh, uh, you know, they, they Steward. Yeah. yeah. Provided stewardship. Took care of it. Yeah, yeah for sure. And, and so that perspective is, is you know, we've been, like, like you said, we've been saying this forever and ever and ever. Uh, but it is only now sort of getting any kind of traction where people are taking it seriously, you know. Um, and I wonder if, uh, are there examples of that as well in, in Greenland where that indigenous knowledge or that stewardship uh, or that well, Inuit knowledge uh, factors I, into industry or it factors into the ways in which you make those yeah, decisions? I, I would say it's still in the process. It has been debated a lot yeah. because we have a tendency to fall back on, um, on academia because it's so strong yeah. in itself that they uh, analyze things, they conclude things, and you cannot do a real uh, dis qualified decision-making process, for example, about quotas on whales or fish and so on, unless it has a, a clear recommendation from the academia. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not really factored in in regards to the indigenous knowledge. And it has been discussed on an ongoing basis since 2013 and just before that, that it has to be factored in as equal mm. to balance it out. Because what we are lacking is the resources to do all the analysis of everything to do a real academic-backed uh, decision-making process in that sense. Because you're not relying on ourselves with the indigenous knowledge when the fishermen are fishing the fish and they are everywhere, right? Yeah. Uh, 
So you, you, you don't embrace that knowledge when it comes in because it's not sectioned in the right proportions and packaged in the right way. So it, it cannot be uh, embraced in that sense. And I, I don't know where we are going to land in regards to that, but hopefully we'll move that forward and, and, and merge, in, merge those kind of uh, uh, two things uh, to secure that. Also, um, the three of us, we're, we're involved in storytelling. And uh, how does uh, our work as storytellers, as people who are involved in media, uh, to different degrees and diff in different ways, how, how can that um, help to transform, help to um, shape the societies in which we engage with? You have any thoughts? Well, I mean, I mean, storytelling is how our societies are shaped in the first place. Right. <laughs> like I, I, it's. We get asked those sorts of questions, or we think about that. I just, I've come to learn, I guess, or understand that like stories are inextricable from any, like practically anything, because mm -hmm. as as an animal, that's our gift is storytelling, mm -hmm. right? We are the storytelling animal. A other animals don't tell don't have to tell stories about who they are and how they came to be there. Like, the wolf is not ever not thinking it's a wolf or having to understand, but we do. And so I think that's intrinsically how we, uh, uh, how we have to do it. And, and it's how everything we do is shaped in terms of the governments and all that stuff. So I think telling these stories will help provide the, the perspective there's another act to that too, though, which is the listening and the understanding and the accepting, which, because you can tell all sorts of things if it's not sort of absorbed, that can be a challenge. And I think we're just getting to that point, right? Because right. our communities, at least here, and, and I don't know less, I know less about Greenland, but like here, we haven't had access to the storytelling mechanisms mm -hmm. for most of their existence. It's only relatively recently that we've had those and I also think it's only relatively recently that broader Canada has sort of figured out that maybe they should listen mm -hmm. and sort of figure this out and I think that's also because they're they've learned they realize that maybe they don't know as much about living on the in this place as they think they would have thought of and I'll just give it I'll tell you a very quick story to illustrate my point <laughs> I was in um Banff, ah, this was a few years ago, pre-pandemic, and I was very privileged enough to be with the Stony Nakoda when they were reintroducing the bison to the, oh, wow. the park. And we had this uh, fantastic sort of, spend a day with them and um, really watch them, and the, and the elders there told this hilarious story about how this process started. So I apologize to my Stony Nakoda cousins, I'm going to tell this story. But they just laughed about how the like the fishing game warden or whatever like the the ministry of national resources came out because they're managing the reintroduction and they asked the stony nakoda they're like well where should we put the buffalo and all this stuff and they're 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 giving them the feedback and then but they don't take all of the feedback and one of the things the sort of government folks the game warden say to the stony nakoda is that well you don't have to worry we're going to put the buffalo there don't worry they don't climb mountains <laughs> is what they say to the Stony Dakota. And they're like, the Stonies, the elders all went, oh, okay, sure. And then in the presentation comes up a photo. They said, so the day after the buffalo were introduced, this is what happened. And they have a photo of a buffalo on top of a mountain. <laughs> and they're like, we knew that the buffalo, like, 
that's what they do. They roam, and they're not, mountains are not, like, it's a buffalo. They don't care. <laughs> they go up it. Uh, and, um, like, to me, that is very illustrative of sort of the history of this place in yeah. a lot of ways. Like, yeah. are people going, you know, the buffalo is just going to climb the mountain, and the official going, no, it'll be fine. The buffaloes don't climb mountains. <laughs> and I think increasingly, I actually think this is part of the root of why there's just across the West, particular in settler colonial nations, there's an increasingly distrust of the institutions and the governments and these things that they've built up, in part because they haven't listened. Like, I don't think it's a coincidence that in Canada we have a failing trust in institutions and democracy at the same time the truth of residential schools is coming to light. Mm. And that's because those very institutions that people are losing faith in are the ones that lied to you about this. And the truth is, that's a really hard thing to put back in the basket. Right. And I think that's true of the environment and a whole host of things where by not engaging and not hearing that the buffalo is going to go up the mountain and just saying, no, we know better, mm -hmm. that's actually contributing to this mistrust, this loss, loss of faith, this, this erosion of community, because it didn't. Like, like, if we had just been honest and transparent with each other from the beginning, we wouldn't be here, but we weren't. And so now we're stuck, and we don't know how to quite get back out of it. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, things like the environment, these major issues are suffering because of our inability to see the truth or to sort of meet in that um, that place. But I'm hoping that through storytelling, right, that the Stony Nakoda can tell the story and it will sink in that, right, there's no, the buffalo are going to climb the mountain. So you sort of have to accept that that's what's going to happen and either don't put them near the mountain or just be like, that's what they do. They're yeah. buffalo and accept it on that sort of um that level and accept what we're saying, our communities are saying about water and all of these issues, right? Because I'm sure your community was saying the ice is melting for decades and it's yeah. who listens. Well, I, I just recently came into the storytelling segment uh, with the TV series. Um, but I think, well, at least in, in, our, in our part of the world, we are very strong in storytelling. We have a very strong oral uh, trans transfer uh, transfer of, of information and so on. Uh, that's just through history, right? That's where we are strong. But I would like to see that we, uh, we gain more access to resources to strengthen that even more and tell our stories into people's homes. Mm -hmm. Because the narrative about telling a story through, for example, a TV series is so strong because people are embracing it. They are seeing it within their homes, and they are accepting the, the premises of, of the storyline. Um, I participated in, in Bowen because I could see the benefit of presenting a more modern Greenland, hmm. because there was a lot of uh, discussion under the writing process about what that should look like. And there was different views on it. And it was then promoted by the, the director that they wanted to show a more modern uh, expression. And uh, because of that, I accepted to try it out. And uh, it, it, it was great. 
and um, and I really acknowledge the the power of the storytelling. But the narrative about, for example, Bourne is written out of a Danish perspective, mm. right? And that's also the main storyline that is perceived out of a Danish minister in Denmark, the issues that she encounter. Um, and we were discussing it also internally under the production phase. And they said, well, you just have to accept that it is out of a Danish perspective. And obviously we did, but they also said they would like to back us in regards to the, the different narratives that we could come with that are more true to how we see things. Because we, we don't have the economical um, resources to actually back productions like that one, because that is very, very expensive yeah. to actually to, to, to pull such a production off, right? And uh, it could be very, very interesting if we got access as indigenous or Inuits to that kind of uh, economical uh, backing to tell stories because we're really good at it. Yeah. And here's where I like, here's where I will share. Uh, the Indigenous Screen Office, which is an organization I've helped uh, create, uh, is funding a project that's a collaboration between Inuit here and Inuit in Greenland. Mm. And traditionally, this was not allowed right. because uh, Canadian money couldn't be spent on a uh, you know foreign uh, production. But of course, Inuit Greenland, like what these folks would say is, they speak the exact same language. Yeah. They're the same nation, yeah. Inuit, and that if they'd wanted to tell this story before Canada, the only barrier would have been a boat, right? Like, like you know, like it, that's it. Yeah. It wouldn't have been, oh, some funder says it doesn't achieve CanCon. No, like none of that would have existed. So the Indigenous Screen Office has been able to set it up so that, like, we can fund that project regardless of the border because the border isn't the Inuits. Right. The borders is some fabrication of colonialism. So that's part of the way we, we're approaching this right. is like, why should I be, why should, and I mean, I'm not Inuit, but like, why should our Inuit, my Inuit cousins be separated from their relations uh -huh. by this false border when it comes to storytelling? Right. When, when it comes to, speaking those that this most human of of activities i don't think it should be barriered and so that to me is an example of how we can begin to inject some i don't want to call it indigenous thought but just like some sovereignty as i i'm a big proponent of sovereignty for our folks um into these systems by like saying yeah that rule is set up for like I don't know who that rule is exactly set up for, but not us. Right. And and so allow us the freedom to do that because we realize that Greenland doesn't have, you know, doesn't have a uh, Canada Council for the Arts, let alone an Indigenous Screen Office. It doesn't have those sorts of funding supports. But what I love about this particular moment in storytelling is I can watch your show in my living room, yeah, and and I can also share tweet or like text with my friend in Taiwan who is also watching their show in your <laughs> living room and yeah there's a whole bunch of corporations involved in that and I want to put that aside for the second but the idea that we can access this level of storytelling just so easily uh, is awesome like uh, is. as a film geek who grew up in the 80s like to get a movie from like 
Greenland or Denmark required real effort, Kevin. Yeah. Like, yeah. like it required international postage yeah. is what it required. Like, it was a whole thing to see those movies. Now it's it can be just a click away. Uh, corporations get involved in that. But, like, I think there's a lot to be said that as human beings we're more the possibility to be more connected and more understanding of one another is so much greater now. Like, look at how we're doing this. Like, it, it, if we'd done this even 20 years ago, the only people who would have heard this are the people in the room. Yeah. Right. Right. But now there's all this potential for, for this, to, this conversation. And I think there's just unlimited potential in how we could totally transform I don't want to say the world, but at least how we relate to the world and how we're behaving in relation to the world through this storytelling. It's why I think this moment is so important that yeah. we use these tools to do this. Like, we need indigenous people to tell our stories right now and as as big a variety of stories on all of these platforms. And to not put this too strong a point, but like, you know, the species might really require this moment. <laughs> and so we should lean in. And um, and I hope it's not too late, yeah. right? Because, like, the screen office, the, sharing, the, the dedicated indigenous program at Canada Council, like, these are all very recent. Yeah, indigenous theater at the NAC. Indigenous theater at the NAC. Yeah. These are very recent events. I hope that we can you know, uh, that it gets wide enough, the effect is wide enough that we can change course uh, a little bit and that we see more shows that are by Inuit yeah. in Greenland. Uh, I think that is more on the way, but it's still uh, fairly small productions in that sense. So, uh, but I know there's movement in the area. Just recently, Nuke, there was a premiere of a new horror movie and uh, locally produced, but it, just, just to give you an example on how much time and effort it takes, it took them five years to actually shoot it and post-produce it and then uh, finalize it because there's not a lot of resources to, uh, to tap into mm. in our part of the world. Yeah. So. Well, we make an effort, uh, not an effort, but we, we make a priority of having Inuit content in our seasons as well. And so yeah. we, in our first season, we had an Inuit uh, uh, circus piece that was immensely popular uh, from Arc Cirque. We have a show in uh, this season, um, The Breathing Hole, where mm. we're doing a drum workshop in Joe Haven uh, this week, next week. Right now, um, and uh, with uh, Greenlandic and uh, Inuit artists from across uh, Canada as well, and uh, Inuit director, um, Inuit co-author, um, and so, uh, and we have another show as well that we're partnering with uh, French theater in the building with uh, coming up as well, and and so we've, and th that'll be ongoing. Like we, we at Indigenous theater, we we try to, uh, we make a priority of of having that broad. Uh, representation on the and that's part of that's the thing it's not just the representation but it's the embodiment of our ideas our culture our languages as well that, yeah. that, that's the other part too is is hearing uh, our languages yeah. uh, in these media in these forms in these um, in in the storytelling and how important those con like those indigenous concepts are embedded in the language and so 
um, representing and, and, and having those uh, in the art form is so vital and important. I mean, I remember the, my first year working at the Toronto International Film Festival was 2006. And the opening film that year was the Journals of Canute Rasmussen, the Zach Canuck feature, the first Inuit feature to ever open, I think the first and only Inuit feature to have ever opened the Toronto Film Festival. I was a new programmer then, the first Indigenous programmer in the history of the, the festival. And I sat in Roy Thompson Hall when that premiere played. And to hear, and it's not even my language, but to hear Anuktitut mm -hmm. in that theater, I cried. Yeah. You know, and I cried because it meant that Anishinaabe might, yeah. Anishinaabe Moen might one day be heard yeah. in that theater. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, like, I think that's really important. I mean, the Canada Council just wrapped up a whole northern tour. We were part of the, the Arctic Arts Summit, yes. which gathered uh, circumpolar nations to talk about arts and, and culture. We've, we've had a really renewed commitment to artists in the North, frankly, because they've been underserved for mm -hmm. the entire history of the Canada Council and the cultural sector of Canada. Even though I would argue internationally, arts from the North here are very well recognized. Like right. they're, it's part of what would define Canadian culture to the rest of the world is the arts from the North. So I think we're, we're seeing that renewed investment. And just as a plug, I can't wait to see that horror movie because <laughs> Oh, Inuit have yeah. the scariest stories I have ever heard in my life. I, like, I'm getting chills. I've they've told me some of these stories, Kevin. I'm sure you've heard some. Heard I know some. you know them. Yeah, yeah. but I'm, I'm thinking could 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 there be like a more openness to exchange different uh, like shows or movies and so on on a on a broader scale because it's like we don't really have good connection between our neighboring countries. And I think it's a pity because we have um, a flight route going from Nunavut uh, to, uh, to, to Greenland like 20 years ago. And it stopped because of changing uh, uh, buying patterns from some of the uh, supermarkets in, in, in Greenland. But we need more interconnectivity in the sense of moving pe people back and forth, goods, but also culture and also popular culture, like movies and shows and so on, right? It could be very, very interesting. I mean, yes is the answer. I, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure I'm fully in charge of that, but yeah. I have, I, at least I have some say in that. But I, but I think that work is happening, right? Like, I think the, those, yeah. um, again, it's, it's, it's like having that, uh, I hate to use the word, but like the beachhead of being in these like institutions as indigenous people to be able to make those connections occur, right? Like it's, yeah. again, it's about resourcing. It's about being at the table. It's about having a platform to be able to like make these connections and present work and, and showcase work and be a part of work uh, across uh, circumpolar region, across Turtle Island yeah. uh, and around the world. Like um, in our first season at the, uh, here at the NAC for Indigenous Theater, we, we had a gathering of 78 indigenous artists from all over the world come here to talk and to share uh, uh, their perspectives on, on the work that they do in the storytelling that they do. And mm. uh, this, the commonalities are so strong. Um, it doesn't matter what part of the world uh, you're coming from. And so uh, I think... I, I would love to see that. And I think, I think what would work best is to look at local agreements between Nunavut and Greenland. And, because you know, one of the challenges in Canada is the entire cultural sector is, and most industries are based in a very thin band across the southern border. Yeah. Yeah. 
And um, so like the Canada Council's approach now to the north is less, we're going to go to the north and tell you how to do things because that's dumb. So instead, it'll be partnering with people who are already there yeah. and basically allowing them to do what they need to do to make it work there and just funding that. And so I think that would be the way I would approach it is, is get the northern folks to make the agreement and get out the southern folks just to pay for it and, and get out of the way of it. Because I yeah. think it's too, you know, part of this whole, at least part of the way I've tried to approach the cultural sector is like increasingly get, at least for our folks, get folks out of the way. Right. Like, like you, you know, let us do what we need to do and don't, don't be, I hate to use gatekeepers because it's a weird thing, but like, don't, like, we know what we need to do. Right. So, and do it. And then the other big thing I think that we should be thinking about, especially for the North, is to stop treating it as a place of extraction, mm -hmm. right? Like, where you just, you go there to take something away from it. And this includes culture. Like, the North needs culture to, for itself. Yeah. Right. Like there's no museums, there's no big galleries, there's no big performance spaces in the north. That's not right. Like the reality is they it, like most northern Inuit artists, like let's just take a carver, for example, yeah. their work does not stay in the north. Their community never sees it again. They carve it. They sell it to a southern someone in the southern gallery and it is gone. The community never gets the chance to experience it. That's not right. Like, I get that that's sort of the whole point of this place. It shouldn't be. Like, we need culture for culture's sake to make vibrant communities, healthy communities for humans to feel fully yeah. there. So, like, there should, just like there should be schools and libraries and all of this in all of those places, there should be art centers, yeah. performing arts places, galleries, so that. Because why do we get it all down in the south? Yeah. Like, why do we have this? I mean, literally the yeah. National Arts Center. And I go to Nunavut, and they don't. Yeah. I don't. That ain't right. Yeah. And so, like, on the, yeah. And so I want to see that. I want to see, because that's our, those are our people. And, like, why should we have to always sell outside of our communities? Why can't we have that enrichment here? Why can't we have movie theaters or if not movie theaters, access to streaming service. So it's not like, the, you know, the joke in Cowlitz used to be, if you want to have movie night on Friday night, well, you decide the week before because that's how long it's going to take it to download. <laughs> and it's like, but that's not fair either because the reality is that access is a challenge for both the consumer who wants yeah. to watch your show, yeah. but also for the makers of your show because yeah. if they want to be there... How hard is it to create that show if you're in Nunavut and you can't download, like, so you block both the creation and the dissemination. So I think we have to, um, we have to allow those communities to have the art and not think that it has to be in the South to be relevant. It doesn't. Maybe, maybe it should stay there. And if we want to go see it, we have to go there and maybe we don't go there. We just have to admire it from the far. But the idea is, because <laughs> I know not a lot of them want us up there, but like, um, you know, uh, I think we should be more accepting of that. I think we have a culture where it's like, well, if it's beautiful, we want it here where we can see it. It's like, no, maybe it should stay with those folks, and yeah. that's okay. Um, right? We didn't carve totem poles. Like Nations did not yeah. carve totems to be in museums. Right. right. They well, carved them to stay there.
Well, I'm always fascinated by all the Anukshuks across the southern Canada, right? Like all and, of the... On the in, drive here, in, I saw a few, and I was like, that's... I wonder who put that up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. But uh, it's, so, it's so true. Like, uh, I think there, there is something about that we do, well, we don't, but well, I guess we do, We'd like uh, culturally, where we're happy to sell indigenous art, um, but we're not so much happy, not as happy to support it in the community where it's from, just as you said. And I think that that, that goes for the North as it goes for indigenous communities as well. I think that that, that is, we're, very, we're always grateful when there's a, a powwow dancer or somebody doing you know, a carving and people can come in and, and watch that. Uh, often those are shipped all over the world. Um, and yet the communities where those come from are often left without the resources to be able to keep that sort of sustaining um, in any in, in, a, in a meaningful way, and I think that's it's um it's a it's a part of the sort of greater culture of being a colonial state that is is about exporting everything and, and shipping everything uh, away from 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 here from the from the lands. Um, I want to thank you all for joining us today uh, for this uh, wonderful talk. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah, thank, thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Watch this show. It's Watch so great. Show. <laughs> so great. Come see more of the Sphere Festival, and thank you all. Cook stay up.